Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. So thanks for tuning in today. Today, I got an expert on the brain and he actually did an image of my brain. Yep, I was pretty worried afterwards whether it was totally turned off. Luckily, it wasn't that bad. I'm, of course, talking about Andrew Hill. He is an expert on neurofeedback. He had Ben Greenfield. For anyone that doesn't know who Ben Greenfield is, he is one of the leading biohackers, health optimizers, and one of the biggest podcasts. And he's been training his brain. That takes a lot of trust for one of the best in the world to actually uh, let someone else train your brain. He's the founder and uh, director of Preak Brain Institute. He's been a lecturer at the University of uh, California, UCLA, one of the best universities in the world for, I think, almost 13 years. And then, of mm. course, he has a PhD in uh, cognitive neuroscience. So I'm really excited to have Andrew Hill with me today. Andrew, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Matt. Glad to be here. So, Andrew, neurofeedback, neuroscience, the brain, what's up with that? It's, I mean, we all have one, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a very personal topic for everyone. We all, I mean, neuroscience, of course, is a whole practice and a study and a, you know, set of disciplines. And it's a pretty broad set of disciplines. It crosses these days, you know, medicine, psychology, sociology, you know, everything. You know, you and I both are sort of in this biohacking space and, you know, everyone in the biohacking space is their own personal neuroscientist. You have to be. But, you know, it, we're all carrying around you know, three plus pounds of machinery that are the most complicated things that are known to man, you know, more brain cells in the brain than there are stars in the sky. I mean, it's unbelievable how complex this thing is and we barely understand it. And yet we all work with it, hopefully, you know, thoroughly every day. So that's, you know, everything I do is about that, giving people control, understanding of how their brain ages, how it changes, how it gets, you know, performance bottlenecks, how you can, take control of resources, how you can use different forms of neuroimaging or assessment to figure out how your brain might be performing in ways that, you know, aren't obvious to you. By the way, brains are really bad at doing self-observational sort of like, oh yeah, I'm performing fine. This is why we do things like text our, you know, I'm sure you don't do this, Mads, but some people text on their phone when driving or they, Never you know, that. drink, Never uh, drink that. and then drive because they don't realize degrees of performance are degrading where the whole system tunes itself constantly to sort of keep our, us thinking we're performing about the same and perceiving information about the same, no matter how tired or alert or you know, energetic we are. So yeah, everything I do is about giving you that perspective, that control over the thing that essentially is you from my perspective. Yeah. And so I know you are an expert on neurofeedback and you also look a lot into like not just neurofeedback. But if we start with neurofeedback, Yeah. Can you explain what that is? It seems to be, when I look more into like one of the best kept secrets in regards to how it's mm -hmm. making an impact for so many lives, yet it's not something the normal person hear about. Yeah, it's a little bit of a fringe science still, which is, you know, a little bit unusual tragic because it's more than 50 years old in clinical practice. This stuff was discovered in terms of how it's used today, largely with humans. It was discovered in the late 60s at UCLA, actually, Dr. Barry Sturman. I'll tell you the, the the story in a moment if you like, but it was discovered on cats and 
you know, the joke I tell now is that cats are very bad instruction followers. So this is not a voluntary process of like doing stuff to your brain. To define it, and I'll give a very technical, dense explanation, then I'll unpack it. Neurofeedback essentially is operant or instrumental conditioning that is involuntary and produces implicit learning. So for those of you in the audience who are psychology students, you may be familiar with Skinner's pigeon. Skinner and Pavlov are two learning scientists, and Pavlov made two things that were unassociated, like a bell or a light and salivation. He yoked those together with learning. It's not what we're doing. We're not making you salivate when we ring a bell, I promise. We're doing a Skinnerian conditioning, which is operant. And, and Skinner would take pigeons who already do things like peck and hop, and he would teach them to do certain patterns or do it in a certain way. So, okay, pigeon, I want you to peck five times on a bar to get a pebble of food. And you can't really say to the pigeon, hey, pigeon, five times, because pigeons don't count that well, you know, with, you know, they can't, they can't read, you know. So you have to sort of teach the behavior and the way you shape the behavior to pigeon is the first day you sort of reward it with a pebble of food when it gets near the bar. And the next day when it pecks in the bar, and the next day when it pecks in the bar repetitively, and then you only reward it when it pecks the five times you're looking for, and you shape the complex behavior, your brain is full of little pigeons pecking at stuff trying to get reward, basically. You have a couple billion little pigeons learning from getting more and less neurotransmitter and, and making more and fewer friends with other, neuro, with other cells and information flow, and there's a complete chaotic and organize. It's a mix of chaos and organization coming together and then deassembling throughout the brain as information flows throughout the brain. And with neurofeedback, you're measuring resources, like these little you know, pigeons behaving. And whenever the resource happens to shift a little more towards the direction you think it might benefit from, you applaud that resource with usually in neurofeedback, it's audio and visual feedback. You know, or occasionally tactile, like a rumble strip. I um, used to work with people who were deaf and blind and couldn't get much out of watching movies you know, or, or watching a game on a screen, which is what we often do. So for them, I would put a vibration pad down under them and they would sit on this like vibrating rumble strip whenever the brain did the right thing, the whole floor under them would buzz or the chair would buzz. Or there was one system I used for a while that had a teddy bear you would hold if you were a little kid. And whenever your brain happened to move towards the right direction of you know, re reduced anxiety or improved attention for just a half a second as it's fluctuating all on its own, the little teddy bear would sort of rumble in your stomach and make you feel good. For you, Mad, you can have a teddy bear if you really wanted to, but I would, I would probably love have a teddy you sit, bear. Right? I mean, you seem like a teddy bear kind of guy. I am a teddy bear um, kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. I would have you sit at a computer screen and put a couple clips on your ears, and let's say you wanted to work on your executive function. Let's say you're not feeling quite as alert or crisp as you need to be. You're not able to pull words out of your mind in the afternoon when you want to be. You're not sleeping deeply enough at night. You essentially, you aren't you know, regulated fully up when you're up or down when you're down. So chronically kind of half asleep when you're awake it can kind of never deeply asleep when you're asleep, you know, burnout phenomenon that happens to a lot of us. One way of going after that is boosting your alertness and your vigilance to prevent you from feeling sleepy during the day. And the consequence is you sleep harder at night. So prying those two states apart more and more. The way you do that is you look at the beta waves and the theta waves on the left-hand side of the head. Circuits involved with maintaining your, your focus when things are either changing or interesting or alert. It's, it's the alertness assist circuits essentially. And theta waves are a slow brain wave that when you make a lot of theta, the brain's in this sort of receptive mode. You can sort of I use a lot of automotive metaphors. I apologize in advance, but having a lot of fade in your brain is kind of like having air in the brake lines of whatever circuit it is. So if you go to pump the brakes, it just takes a minute. Nothing happens automatically. The inhibition is soft. And so things become a little bit reactive or automatic or impulsive. 
or physically hyperactive, which is motoric impulsivity. Physical impulsivity is, is a high theta state. So at rest, if your brain makes lots of theta, generally people are a little bit disinhibited, and often a high theta state at rest compared to the average person gives you a hint of things like ADHD. So the ratio, for instance, of theta, which is this receptive attention but almost inactive or you know, nonlinear state, to the beta waves, active gas pedal sort of frequencies, very linear, the ratio of the amount of those two brain waves can predict ADHD 94% accurately, looking at the resting measurements of your brain over time. You, know, you against the population, if it's a high theta-beta ratio, you have a very large likelihood of having an ADHD-style brain. You know, a brain that is a little bit disinhibited, that needs novelty or does a really good pattern matching, high stimulus, you know, thing, but doesn't do so well in boring, repetitive environments, for instance. And if your goals are to sit in a boardroom or be an accountant and you have a high theta-beta ratio and you're getting in trouble or you're in your, your classroom because you can't sit still, then that becomes a performance target to go after in your brain. So I'm already giving you this perspective. We're not talking about what is right or wrong with you, looking at your brain in these ways and deciding what to go after. It's more of a fitness perspective, at least the way that peak brain works with neurofeedback. We treat it like personal training. The field, 50 plus years, is still mostly replete with therapists. There are something in the neighborhood of 5,000, probably half the, the, the neurofeedback people are in North America. And about 5,000 of them, I would say, are in North America. And the other half are everywhere else in the world. And, you know, of course, there's some in Europe, there's a few in, in Denmark, not a lot in that part of Europe. So, but most people that do this have become therapists and then done neurofeedback instruction or training for the population of interest they care about as therapists. So trauma or autism or sleep issues or whatever it is. Epilepsy um, as well? Epilepsy, that? that's right. right. Well, well, people don't generally become therapists for epilepsy. It works no. for epilepsy. Neurofeedback does. But I'm saying in terms of clinical practice, the, the majority of the field are first therapists and then learn this technique as a way of another tool set with their therapeutic population of interest. But yes, this process was discovered because it actually reduces seizures. And a lot of the things we do have nothing to do with the therapeutic aspects of the mind or the therapeutic relationship you may have in healing. And they're simply about the physiology. I mean, the case of seizure is case in point that it must be more about physiology than, than the mind in, in many cases. This is uh, probably a good time to unpack Dr. Sturman's cats. Yeah. So in 1967 or so, Dr. Sturman was at UCLA. He's a learning scientist and he was approached by NASA to determine how dangerous this rocket fuel vapor was that astronauts were inhaling, getting headaches and feeling nauseated. So, you know, I apologize to listeners who may cringe now, but this is the late 60s. We were experimenting on animals quite a lot more. And Dr. Sturman was exposing cats to rocket fuel vapor and looking at how many minutes of exposure would produce symptoms of, you know, dizziness and drooling and crying and stumbling and seizures and coma and death, you know, really severe symptoms from this toxic methylhydrazine chemical. And what he found of the 32 or so cats that he was working with is that about two dozen of them had a perfect, nearly perfect dose-dependent curve where increased minutes in the airtight chamber with the methylhydrazine meant increased symptoms. And very linear. And they, you know, just very, you know, okay, this time people were having, or the cats were having instability events, and then they were having seizures at about an hour in or 40 minutes to an hour in, they're having seizures. 
But eight of the cats refused to have seizures. And over two hours in, 160 minutes in, they were showing these instabilities, early pre-seizure events. And Dr. Sturman initially, this may be apocryphal, this aspect of the story, but theoretically, the way it was related to me, um, Dr. Sturman couldn't figure out why three quarters of the cats refused to have seizures and one quarter were having lots of, you know, or, or vice versa, you know, one quarter were these super brain seizure resistant cats until he realized he'd used these cats in an earlier experiment to see if whenever cats made a little bit more of a brain wave, cats happened to make a lot of this sort of resting predator brain wave of a relaxed body and alert mind. Whenever that burst in their brain, he squirted chicken broth into their mouth, the operant conditioning yeah. and shaped this frequency called SMR up in amplitude. And Months later, these cats were seizure resistant when exposed to toxins. So his lab manager was also having seizures and not very well controlled through medication. And so they worked on her seizures through an operant conditioning system. Like this, not chicken broth. It was audio training, I believe. And, and for a few years, she went off all meds and remained seizure-free. And that was the start of the field in the late 60s. And by the early 70s, it was being used for seizures, sleep, and ADHD pretty broadly and by you know the late 80s we had you know huge amounts of research for something for ADHD in 2012 the american academy of pediatricians knocked neurofeedback up to level 1 best support for efficacy against ADHD the only other thing in that category being stuff like stimulant you know medication so this gets back to your question about why are we not using it why have we not heard about it because it works for seizure and just I mean, a reliably, quick comment the, sturman wrote a paper uh, mm, I looked at uh, some of the research yeah. as well, and it's not like the U.S. is recognizing it. Germany as well put it, looked into the literature for ADHD, and gave it an A plus recommendation. So, like yeah. conservative. Yeah, there's there's the sort of almost compelling research, you know. The issue in the U.S. anyways is that there's not the bar is fairly high for insurance companies to have to pay for things. And it's hard to get things covered that have not been historically. This is around for a long time. And there's been a bias against neurofeedback in this country at the insurance company level since it was essentially developed. It's been – they've been fighting back against it. A couple of big insurance companies were paying MDs to go to ADHD support meetings for years to say this stuff didn't work. Full-time salaries of, of doctors just being paid to poison the well you know, for no other reason. And there's been a few other things that are weird in the field like that over the past 50 years. And then we have a very high-tech – kind of almost mystical black art, you know, degree of science required to do this work historically. And it's been very technical, very challenging. So the skill sets have always been a little bit hard to acquire. And then the technology has been expensive. You know, that's probably near and dear to your heart, the sort of technology adoption and evangelism space, the accelerator space. The technology is finally in the realm of almost prosumer, you know, pricing. You know, we, we have a self-training kit that you know, including a nice high-end laptop is like you know, 3500 bucks or something. It's not nothing by any means. It's still expensive. But when I got in the field of neurofeedback you know, 20-something years ago, the cheapest system you can get was well over $10,000. And it didn't work especially well, I mean, compared to what we can do now. It'll help in terms of ease of use and setting it up and just you know, replicability. So technology keeps coming down and down and down in cost and our ability to communicate about this stuff and educate and you know, the sort of technology landscape we use to deliver neurofeedback keeps improving incrementally. But the core stuff we do largely in the field is still based around these discoveries of people in the 60s and 70s and 80s around some of the core frequencies, some of the circuits in the brain, you know, and how we, we condition or exercise them to produce resource shifts. And then at the same time, the neurofeedback field was growing techniques 
and sort of demonstrating that, they, that things work, the assessment field, so, you know, coming out of neuropsychology and sleep studies, we have QEEG or quantitative EEG, which is looking at population level metrics to sort of predict what might be interesting. So, you know, you've had a QEEG or a brain map, we call them, and we had to sit still, put a cap on your head, squirt it full of gel. It's kind of annoying, but not especially painful or anything. Pretty and easy. you sit, yeah, you sit still for 10 minutes or something, eyes closed, eyes open. And then we take your resting baseline, sort of average EEG, and we compared it to people your age and came back with a set of metrics that were how unusual your brain is compared to the average person your age. And that set of averages, your, your heat maps of difference, you know, we call them Z-scores or really standard deviations. Those things are relatively stable. Mads, I, I've known you for a little bit of time now. You've evolved as a person. I'm sure your brain has changed. But your brain has changed a lot relative to you, not relative to the average person. Mm. You know, so you at a high level look the same. You know, from a thousand feet away, you look the same as you looked last year and the year before. And that is true of most of your brain resources. The averages of how you know, well-rested you usually are, if you often handle stress resources or attention resources or fatigue or memory. And many of these things, while not you know, diagnostic in your brain, if I see unusual features, I can often predict that, oh, hey, for many people, this particular resource can operate, you know, when it's showing up as it does for you as a bottleneck or here's a resource which might be suboptimal. Does that sound plausible? And you and I had this, this exercise where I said, okay, here's an unusual feature. It can get in the way this way. Does it? Oh, it does. Okay, cool. Does it matter? It does. Great. Now we know a real, you know, performance thing to go after. Oh, this one doesn't sound valid. Okay. Not relevant for you. And so it's not this relationship. I, I tell people now, I'll never say, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. Here's what's wrong with you. It's always this relationship of looking at your data going, hey, does this stuff seem you know, relevant? Oh, it does? Great. Excellent. Yeah. Now we have control. Now you have you know, the decision-making ability to say, yes, let's go after that thing that we think is related to something I care about. And that really does, I mean, this is in some ways more important than the technology. The neurofeedback stuff is expensive and technical and, you know, it takes 40, 50 sessions of training, you know, to really make permanent changes over a few months. But that's not the important part to me. The important part is the fact that I can look at your brain and go, oh, look, here's some anxiety features, some stress stuff, some sleep, some ADHD stuff. What do you want to work on? And the agency, the ability to go over a few month, you know, course of transformation giving you the control over those things is really why we do this. It just happens that neurofeedback is our heaviest lifter. But you know, as, as you know, there's lots of other biohacking techniques and technologies that are pretty effective to, to make change over time. So, Yeah. And can you explain a little bit about how it works like low practical? So the QEG, you come in, you get this easy yeah. measurement. I remember I got that. Then there was the follow-up conversation where you asked me like, hey, I see this is your brain. Does this seem like yeah. something you can recognize? And I was like, one thing was like, mm, I'm, I'm not really ruminating. And you said like, this other part of your brain that's like light sensitivity or all things and like that. I have migraine. And that suddenly explained like where some of that was mm -hmm. coming from. And then the next step from that would be. The next step would be, you know, which of these resources or bottlenecks are the ones you think are the most important. Yeah. And what else do you want to work on? Not everything shows up as, a, as an outlier. I mean, many people want to work on things like creativity or flow state access. And those, you know, the, even the lack of those things doesn't usually show up in the brain in any way that I would, you know, interpret. And so from a set of goals, which are informed by the brain maps and your, you know, just what you want to work on, the same way you might walk into a high-end fitness center and say, you know, I had this shoulder that's been hurting for 20 years, plus I really want abs. 
Mm. You know, one of those things is necessary to help functional, you know, success. And one is because you're going to be on, on the beach in six months. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of joking. But but like you can it, it's a little bit arbitrary from my perspective what you want to work on. And, and I never impose goals or tell you, you know, what effects you're having. It's simply about, OK, let's identify the handful of workout categories you may want to develop. And then we do these, you know, I said three wires usually. Sometimes it's five wires on your head. We measure your brain. When the brain shifts in the right direction, we applaud it with audio and visuals. And for half an hour, you sit there and watch a computer screen. And, you know, when your brain happens to shift on its own, it gets a little bit like, good job, brain. Good job, brain. Yeah. And then, nope, the spaceship stalls. And then the spaceship resumes when the, when the brain shifts its data back down. The brain goes, ooh, that's interesting. The spaceship just sped up. What made the spaceship? Hey, wait a minute. I dropped my theta and the spaceship sped up. That's related. Well, that's interesting. And then the brain starts to try to drop its theta and take control of the stimulus. And then we, of course, don't let it do that. We move the goalposts. Every few seconds, we adjust what we're asking for. This is that shaping aspect of Skinner's conditioning where we move the targets so that the brain is encouraged to trend its theta down, let's say, over several minutes. And you may have a subtle experience of that if you're very in tune with yourself. You may not. Again, the process is mostly involuntary because the brain tends to produce whatever activity internally will get the most output in the world in some ways. So if we're only applauding with spaceships flying and beeps and music, some things the brain is doing, it starts to do a little bit more of those things. But you don't really have a strong sense of that in the half-hour training session. What happens is over the next day or so, your brain does a little more of what produced the input. And that you feel. After a few sessions, you, you leave the office going or the session that you've done yourself going, oh, I feel a tiny bit tired or a little bit alert. But then the next day, you feel the, the effect of the session or that night when you sleep, you feel the effect of the session and clarity creeps in or your dreams get wild or you have a lot of laser-like focus or your creativity unlocks or whatever it is you're working on. In this case, turning down theta, after five sessions or so, you start feeling more and more self-controlled. Sleep onset starts to get better. Impulsivity starts to drop away. If you're a user of stimulants or cannabis, your tolerance gets abolished for those things. You have to sort of ramp down your, your use if you're doing this sort of classic theta-beta training because you get essentially – you don't need stimulants or cannabis anymore. If you're somebody who uses those things in a, as a lifestyle or medical drug, then you need to adjust cannabis and stimulants as you do neurofeedback because the brain gets stronger and stronger and stronger and more flexible and you start like thinking you took two Adderall when you didn't because it hit you so hard or – you know, canceling your plans the evening because you smoked your after dinner joint and you can't, you can't get off the couch after that anymore because things hit you very strongly. So it's an opportunity. I mean, it's all, it's very useful to have low tolerance for, for lifestyle drugs because then you can have moderation. It's very hard to be a moderate drinker even if you, if you have no tolerance to alcohol, for instance. So one big trick for becoming a moderate user of alcohol, if you've been out of control with alcohol is to take a break, reset your tolerance, and it's much easier to manage relationships with substances if we have low tolerance. So we have this somewhat reliable tool in neurofeedback of dropping tolerance to cannabis and psychostimulants very quickly. And in the case of ADHD, you know, people come in on Adderall and Ritalin and other brand name you know, uh, stimulants. And it's a big piece of the equation is having to drop that down as you start to make your brain you know, flexible and strong in the face of these executive function needs. So. And one of the really interesting things about this is that you don't need to continue doing it your entire life. Right. Well, for the big regulatory things, for attention, for sleep, for stress, once you've built enough of the resource, your brain is going to essentially be using that resource every day. I mean, Madge, you're doing an excellent job right now of suppressing seizures. Good job. 
Thank you. you really are. You know, it's amazing. You know, you're totally present. There's no seizures happening at all. If you were having seizures a few times a week and you train up your SMR, eventually you're now walking around suppressing seizures. The brain's got healthier SMR. It's going to enjoy practicing that use that natural resource of seizure threshold, you know, keeping that threshold nice and high, keeping them suppressed. Or, you know, less extreme cases, attending, managing a stress response, managing the onset and depth of sleep. It's a whole bunch of resources that once you tune them up, you're practicing them every day until they become very, very stable. Things that take longer and things that don't become permanent as quickly are things that have an active cause, like wear and tear with a lot of concussions or... Uh, chemical insults, you know, mold, lime, chemotherapy. The process is often more like, you know, four to six months instead of three to four months of training for a big permanent change. And in terms of scope, I mean, ADHD and, you know, on assessments of attention as well as on assessments of the brain, you know, QEGs, ADHD will typically change three to four standard deviations in three to four months. If you have any significant attention problems, they usually are gone and you're above average at the end of that process compared to, you know, way off of the average initially. But if it's like language production or sensory integration in autism, maybe four to six months in, it's starting to really stick. And you haven't made quite as much change as you might in like an ADHD brain. We're just kind of retuning some subtle things and you're done, you know, largely. Or a concussion, you know, an NFL player, a lot of wear and tear, you know, some, some guy from Man United, a lot of wear and tear. You got to work on that. That's tissue, my team. Not just the tuning. There you go. Man United. Uh, you got to work on the tissue, though. You got some guy who heads the ball too many times in a practice drill, 20 times, you know, every Sunday. For like six months, he's got injuries. And then, you know, that same guy, get, you know, catches an elbow in the temple in the air, forget it. He's got a concussion. So, yes, you can get them feeling cleared, helping the sleep and the fog, but you may need to do six months of work to really cement all the, you know, the rebuilding gains. And then there's things like schizophrenia. You can make major impacts. I, I have colleagues that work with schizophrenia and show amazing things. But if they stop training, there's kind of this resurgence of the disease process. So I like to use it because I'm not a psychologist or a medical doctor. I like to use it in the things all brains need. Sleep, stress, attention, mood resilience, you know, speed of processing, and all people want you know, creativity, access to your emotions, res- you know, laser-like focus, and so I don't care so much if it's, a, if it's a symptom for you or a goal that's performance-driven. I just need you to come, at, come after you the, the process with us with some sense of the things that you might want to change, you know, essentially. Makes sense. So the people I've talked to that have tried it are all super positive. Mm. But when I, when I tell other people about it, and the obvious question as well for myself, like what are the potential side effects? Like if you can train the brain one way, the good way. Yeah. What about training the the brain in the wrong way? So I'm I'm quite happy about my brain. I would love yeah. to get that uh, light sensitivity or migraine out of the way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about this like the gym a little bit. If you go to the gym and set the machine up wrong, too much weight or the wrong machine, you know, wrong length for you or something, the next day you're very sore and you feel a little weird. And if you ignore it and you go back and exercise again, you actually end up causing problems. And that's exactly what happens in neurofeedback. You feel weird. Your sleep gets thrown off. You feel a bit anxious. You feel wiped out. If you ignore the negative prog- the negative trend and you keep reinforcing it after five or 10 sessions, the thing you've been getting side effects in starts to really stick in. I've seen some really, not from people I've worked with, but I've gotten clients of other practitioners who trained somebody in the wrong direction for a long time and made a permanent, you know, quote unquote, negative change. You know, some 
kid had major anxiety and, you know, and lost his, you know, minimal language skills throughout the course of six months of training. But, you know, the good news is you can then back out the process the same way. So the other ameliorating factor here is that the individual protocols aren't permanent. The individual sessions aren't permanent. So you do one session, see what happens, and use the what person's experiencing to guide it and tune it and adjust it. The metaphor of personal training is really valid here. Hey, how'd that workout feel? Oh, I felt pretty good. How'd the workout feel? I couldn't move my arms the next day. Oh, we might have overtrained you a little bit. Let's back off. But in neurofeedback, the I couldn't move my arms the next day is like your sleep on got thrown off or you felt wiped out and didn't rebound after the neurofeedback session. So the good trainer, that's why you need a trainer in this process, not just like a one-size-fits-all system because it's heavily individualized. The individualization is also a reason why the research backing of it has lagged by 50 years for the clinical in efficacy. I can dial things in. The literature hasn't come close to documenting. But literature is, you know, interesting. You can, you can dig through it yourself. As you saw, many countries are endorsing it. But it's very much this iterative process. It's heavily individualized. And so it's hard to test. It's hard to do big studies on when it's different for every person. It's been very hard to placebo control or to double blind until very recently. So you couldn't do these large, well-controlled studies until recently. And no one owns neurofeedback as a technology. So it's hard to spend five million bucks on a high-level clinical trial when no one can make that money back the way a drug company can in their business model. So there's lots of reasons why the literature you know, lags the clinical efficacy by decades, I would say. But the technique is actually pretty low-key, and the technology, when you think about it, is simply exercising, instead of muscle tissue, you know, the firing rates of cells or how well-connected they are. And the brain does all the heavy lifting of reorganizing. You simply tell the brain, yay! for some of the changes it's already maybe about to make. And it goes, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll drop my theta. Sure, I like the spaceship. I like that spaceship. That was cool. Versus no spaceship. If you only give it a little a bit of applause for some things it's doing, it'll do more of those things. And then you as the voluntary, conscious, driven you know, person with agency go, ooh, I like how that felt. Do more. And then you reinforce it. So if you feel weird, you absolutely can produce a negative progress over time. But it does almost always always work regardless of that. So it's just a question of getting the right effects, you know, dialing it in over time. Cool. And apart from neurofeedback, what else should we know about the brain and how to optimize it or, or what can we do tomorrow or within the next week? Yeah. So there's a few things that I tend to encourage people to do that are broad, you know, biohacking You know, from a gerontology perspective, we call them modifiable behaviors. From a biohacker perspective, you know, we call them what are hacks or whatever. But they're all individual things about taking control and figuring out not just what the rules are, but what works for you. Because people are variable. And I'm going to give you a few rules for sort of diet and exercise and sleep entrainment stuff, which is really the, the foundation for everyone. I view that you need to get your foundational resources sorted out quickly or first. And then you can start working on optimizing. And there's some easy things to do first, like the first things to do are the things you're already doing. You're already sleeping. You're already breathing and moving and eating. You might as well tweak the things you're already doing first. And then if you aren't meditating, add that. And then if you aren't doing neurofeedback or saunas or something else, add that. And then if you aren't testing your blood aminos, and you know, then add that. But like, you know, start with the things you're doing and optimize them. Because you're going to eat, you're going to breathe, you're going to you know, sleep, you're going to exercise, hopefully, or move. You might as well do those things in a way that gets you the most uh, effect and, and is the least detrimental to your health. I really and like so that movement, point. So I mean, it's really critical. You, you might as well because you're going because yeah. you're going to do it. You know, 
And we can know about all the things we can do, but it's, I think it's very much about habits as well. Like, can you make a nice yeah. habit? So something you're already doing is just altering your habit of doing something. I think that's much easier than the rest. Yeah. And you have no choice about, you know, habitual eating or habitual sleeping. I mean, yeah. those things get reinforced with the clock. So I think the biggest things we should do in terms of brain health are about circadian entrainment. And I think the biggest impactful things we do for circadian entrainment are actually not about light, most of my biohacking colleagues would disagree, but I think they're mostly about food. The strongest exogenous or external cue for circadian entrainment has nothing to do with light. It's all about when you eat. It's all and about so food. For someone that never listened before and they're just like, okay, I need to hear this episode because they saw you. Circadian rhythm. Yeah, your daylight cycle. The earth is a photo period. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. And we as you know, adaptive creatures not nocturnal or diurnal or crepuscular, we can shift ourselves around the clock based on our prey and our predators and our environment and our warmth and a bunch of stuff. So we're really good at entraining to the earth and the photo period, the light and the dark cycle of the earth is our clock. But we don't entrain especially well using light. It's one of the signals, there's several light, light cues we use. The strongest cue of the environment to tell us when it's nighttime and when it's daytime is when you eat. So, and the most important meal for timing is the last meal of the day. This is especially true for women who have a slightly shorter 24-hour cycle than men. Men are like 25 hours or more. Usually women are usually a bit, you know, lower, shorter. So if women eat a, a meal late in the day, it's later in your circadian rhythm than it is for men. So you can push on that signal stronger. But that last meal of the day is the strongest one for circadian timing because if you go to sleep, you either have insulin in your system or don't. If you don't have insulin in your system because you haven't eaten, then you have a massive pulse of growth hormone that gets released about an hour and a half into sleep. And if you've eaten before bed, that does not happen because your body thinks it's still essentially a different time of day. And so-, so you're telling me why I'm still a skinny guy is because I'm eating before I go to bed? That's uh, yes. suppressing my growth hormone. Yes, maybe, maybe. Yeah, so the rule of thumb is, first rule, most important rule for circadian timing, go to bed hungry, wake up full and refreshed. If you go to bed full, you wake up hungry and tired. Got it. You know, because if you go to bed with with low insulin, you have a growth hormone release, which then suppresses ghrelin and spikes cortisol a few hours later, and wakes you up feeling energetic, and you can then ride that lack of hunger for a couple of hours in the morning. Second rule: work out in the morning, fasted. You know, actually, that's the third rule. I skipped the second rule. Second rule is wake up the same time of day every day, roughly. Yeah. Feeds into the third rule, which is don't eat yet exercise instead. So I want you basically fasting at the end, end of your day and beginning of your day. And it's much more important to fast for longer at the end of the day. Again, this is biohacker, modern biohacker heresy that you should be fasting at the end of the day, not the beginning. Most of our intermittent fasting buddies will like you know, start eating at like 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. and eat for like three hours and go to bed. It's like, oh no, don't do that. It's the other way around. I want you stopping at like 2 p.m. If you're going to do IF, you know, like restricted time windows, stop in the afternoon, early in the afternoon. Otherwise, eat in the middle of the day. Give yourself a couple hours in the morning to ride that cortisol, get some exercise in. You'll burn six times as much body fat in the morning exercising fasted than you will in the evening after having eaten during the day. Six times for all the people that need some you know, vanity to encourage them to try this. So first so rule, would, don't eat at night. Second rule, exercise in the morning after a consistent wake time. It's really rule two and three together there. And then, so stop eating at around two or four o'clock, skip dinner, is what you would recommend. So a long fasting or just like well, eat an early I'm, dinner I'm at six? I'm about to farm reduction here. You know? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm about what you can do here in social, modern life. You know, just at least three hours, no calories. Plan it, try it. If you want to get crazy with it, try four, try five, try six hours before bed. It works better and better. But if you're this is new to you, making a big change will be wrenching. It won't work that well. So if you're the kind of person who eats up until bed and goes to sleep with you know a fat belly and you know a soporific kind of you know coma creeping over you on the couch, yeah, maybe try this for three hours and make it a hardcore limit for two weeks and see what happens. See what it does to your sleep quality and, and play with it. Actually, self-experiment. And then later, go wait. What was rule two? Oh. Yeah, consistent morning time. I don't care about your bedtime because the morning light is the important light for circadian entrainment, not evening light. The evening light suppress or stretching circadian rhythm is a weak effect. The morning light resetting circadian rhythm is the only strong circadian light cue is the wavelength of light in the sky in the morning is a certain color. And the brain has a nucleus sits on top of the optic nerve, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the nucleus on top of the optic chi or X. And it samples the color of light coming into retina and says, oh, it must be morning and is the strongest sort of re-entrainer that synchronizes a bunch of other clocks that kind of all run on their own in the body. Each organ, for instance, has a clock in it essentially. And there's some central clocks inside the, the cells as well as the central nervous system. And the, there's a vasopressin signal out of the suprachiasmatic nucleus that resets all those clocks first thing in the morning with a pulse of early morning light. And so that early morning consistent wake time you have should be no later than one hour after dawn because you need to get a few minutes of light in your face within that first hour. Otherwise, the sun is too high in the sky and most of that signal for re-entrainment is actually reflected back into space and doesn't get into the atmosphere and you won't really get a strong morning entrainment signal. So don't sleep in. Get up early. You have slightly wonky clock you know, in the sky there given you're in Copenhagen and the time of year is strange because we didn't evolve to have a – you know, four hour a day and a 20 hour night, you know, you're not quite that bad being that far south, but like it can get pretty bad. And mm. so you have to rely more on the feeding, more on the keeping your sleep habits tight, more on activity, because those things will override a wonky light cue or a sun that doesn't come up or stays up, for instance, in the summer. So you have to maintain your habits these ways, just like you have to, you know, brush your teeth and you know, not eat too much crap. You have to like maintain your sleep and circadian habits. They are as important as everything else. Got it. Good advice. So you do a lot of lectures around the world as well. Like where can, uh, where can people find you? And if they want to get more into this neurofeedback, you know, like I need to get started or I need to tell someone about this. Yeah, thanks. So Peak Brain has offices a few places in the world. We have several in the US, Los Angeles, St. Louis, a few other places in California. And we're doing these monthly workshops starting in 2020 in all the big offices we have. So you'll be able to come to Peak Brain for a weekend. We're sort of we've been doing these for years one on one, where we do we teach you to do your own neurofeedback and get you set up with your own equipment. But we've been developing a much more efficient and, and a lower cost and actually a better technology way of doing this. And so we're switching to these workshop formats. That will be not super expensive to get your brain maps done, get your hands on technology and learn it. And then, of course, you can get your own equipment or share it with friends and become your own little biohacking club and get the gear going. So I think we have to firm up the times and dates, but I believe the last weekend in January, I'll be in Copenhagen doing a, a two-day workshop for you know, 10, 15 people. That's the size of these workshops. Pretty intimate with just me or maybe me plus one of my staff, depending on how large the workshops are. And we'll work with you for a couple of days and you'll leave basically knowing how to do it, but not what to do. 
And then we have a four-month coaching program that follows with live Slack, you know, chat support with all of our senior team and coaching throughout that whole program. So you can really iterate through all the workouts and dial them in for, for yourself. And then our self-training program leaves you with the super high in clinical software for the first year and the ability to keep coming back for brain maps without charge and keep training yourself. So it's not, again, so much of a clinical or psychological perspective on this. I'm not a doctor you know, doing this to you. It's really like us getting people like Ben, you, know, you mentioned Ben Greenfield at the beginning, Ben did our program, gets set up with his own equipment and you know, works doing this sort of indirect stuff. I can teach you to be your, your own skilled biohacker with sticking wires to your head and entering session settings pretty easily. What I can't necessarily do in a weekend is figure out how your brain works and iterate through all the different goals you might have and see what works on your sleep and mood and attention and teach you what to expect fully in the process. Nor do I have any real direct experience of, of what you're going to you know, feel. And you have to make meaning out of this stuff. I tell people that you know, I don't tell you what I know. I tell you what I don't know. Go see a doctor. They, they tell you what they know. Come see a scientist. We give you questions. And my job isn't to sort of you – may, you may have experienced this – I don't go through the brain maps and say, here's what's true. I mean, try to teach you to read them instead. And, and hopefully you make more meaning of them ultimately than, than I do. So the training process, if you're self-training, is very similar. where We get you all the skills and hands-on and then some facilitated you know, protocol developments over a few months. And of course, you can visit us in all the offices. But we're doing these workshops in a few different cities in the world. I mean, if you want one in your city, just let us know. You can visit us on socials. Uh, Peak Brain LA or Peak Brain Institute is all the social media handles. So people, f please feel free to look us up and ask brain questions or ask for a uh, workshop if you want one. And the website is peakbraininstitute.com. Peak exactly. Yeah. I will make sure to add the links in the show notes as well. So if you're listening, they will be down in the show notes so, uh, so, you, can, so you can follow Andrew as well. Wonderful. Any other places to find you, Andrew? Yeah, actually, a fair amount. I've done a lot of podcasts. I seem, I seem to be a podcast guy. Thank you for having me on another one. But if you hunt me up on YouTube or iTunes, you'll find a bunch of podcasts, which are different topics. Just to not toot my own horn for a second, I, I hosted a podcast for a while, and I have some really interesting guests who aren't me. So if you want to hear me asking questions instead, I have a podcast on YouTube called Head First. Dr. Hill. It's also on iTunes and things. So there's a handful of episodes there we launched, probably relaunch at some point in the near future with all of our biohacking buddies we've accumulated in the past couple of years. Perfect. So I'm always looking for more questions to answer and more people to interview. So if you have cool brain stuff you want us to cover on our podcast or you know, you have your own burning quirky brain stuff, uh, I'd love to hear from you because uh, we're all about giving you perspective and control over your brain. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure to add the, your podcast as well so people can dig much deeper into their brain and really have the expert asking the questions for the other brain experts. So, Andrew, Wonderful. thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.